Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37. Luke 17, verses 20 to 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. Whereas the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray. Father, we bow our hearts before you today, coming to ask for the help of your Spirit as we prepare to open your word. Lord, I pray that as we open your word, that you would come and do a work and open up our hearts. Lord, I, I think of generations in the past that the scriptures speak of who had good news come to them, uh, just as it has to us, but the message didn't benefit them. It didn't benefit them because they weren't united by faith with those who really listened who truly heard and responded in faith and in repentance. Yet I pray that you would forbid that that would happen in our midst today. Lord, forbid that we should hear without really hearing. Lord, instead, let us be glad, eager, hungry recipients of your word Lord, help us, grant us your grace in this hour that we might hear what you would want to say to our hearts 
that we would respond in faith and repentance to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen. When will the kingdom come? That is the question that's on the minds of the Pharisees, the beginning of this passage, as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem. You can understand why that would be the case as the Christ comes uh, and goes toward the holy city. The self-proclaimed Messiah has made it no secret that he has set his face toward Jerusalem, that he is on a mission toward the holy city. And that gives rise to all kinds of conjecture and interest, even if it's not believing, heartfelt interest. Uh, you see interest, uh, even in the minds of Pharisees like, like these men. These are not men, mind you, who believe in Christ. They don't trust in him, but they're still curious. They're still curious about the promised kingdom of God and what that's going to look like. And so they, they asked Jesus for some additional clarity here. How can they know when it has arrived? They asked him when the kingdom of God would come. Now, the problem with that question, Jesus says, is really twofold. Uh, first, they look at the kingdom of God as something that is entirely future something that's entirely future. They're off, they're, they're looking out at the horizon, wondering when this is going to appear, uh, while Jesus says, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's already here. It's already present. This is still a, a problem uh, in the church today. There, there are still many who are waiting for the kingdom of God to appear. Uh, who fail to see what uh, Christ declared 2,000 years ago, that it was his condescension into the world that signaled the arrival of his kingdom, of the kingdom of God, his incarnation, his sinless life, uh, his vicarious death, burial, and resurrection. That is part and parcel with the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into the world. The Bible tells us that Jesus, the King of Kings, after he made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, all things having been, been put under subjection under his feet. Now we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. The Bible also uh, tells us that we don't yet see uh, the consummation of the kingdom, the full effect of what Christ has wrought. But for those who have eyes to see, those who have the eyes of faith, the Bible says we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. So Jesus, the Son of God, has come. He has inaugurated the kingdom of God on earth, having a, uh, completed the work the Father sent him to do. Today, he is reigning in glory, reigning at the right hand of the throne of God, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The kingdom is here, and Jesus was constantly saying this, even uh, during his earthly ministry. He was saying, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. 
The kingdom of God is here. He said, if it's by the kingdom, by the finger of God that I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Did Jesus cast demons out by the finger of God? Yes, he did. And so the the kingdom of God is here already. It's not something altogether future. Now there's a, there's a second problem he identifies here as well. And this actually accounts in, in part for uh, the, the first problem, their inability to see the present reality of the, the, the presence of God's kingdom, which is that they're looking quite obviously for uh, visible, physical manifestations of God's kingdom. Uh, to that, Jesus says the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, there it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, some people have looked at this and, and interpreted it to say, well, what this means is that the kingdom of God is something that's, that's in your heart. It's something internal. It's something that, that, that manifests, manifests itself by way of uh, an internal witness within the heart of man. But again, look at his audience. Look at who he is speaking to here. He is addressing Pharisees. He's addressing men who don't know Christ in that way. They don't know Jesus in a saving kind of way. So he does not seem to be saying the kingdom of God is within you in the sense that they have an internal, uh, personal knowledge of God's redemptive purposes. If he was saying uh, that to them, that the kingdom of God dwells within them, he would be affirming their participation in that kingdom. He would be saying, good news, you're citizens of the kingdom of God. That obviously isn't what he's saying. Uh, It doesn't comport at all with the rest of the criticisms that he has had of the Pharisees. Uh, The consistent picture that we've had of the Pharisees is that they are uh, blind, uh, proud men. They they put their confidence in a man-made religion. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed or, or with observation, some translations say, that doesn't mean on the one hand that there's no evidence of it, that there's nothing that you can see, that there's no signs of its presence, but rather that its manifestation isn't witnessed primarily in externally discernible phenomena. Things like apocalyptic signs, uh, political shows of power. He's talking to the Pharisees, and and he's and he, he's saying, in effect, if you're looking for the kind of kingdom where someone is going to come in and crush the arm of the Roman establishment, route out all of your enemies, uh, exalt Israel to this place of nationalistic glory. That's not what you're getting. You're looking for the wrong thing here. The kingdom of God is already in the midst of you. It's here. It is present in the person and work of the king. So the contrast isn't between external and internal, but between what the Jews and the the Pharisees in particular are looking for, something that can be seen 
by way of observation and the kingdom's very real arrival in the person and work of Christ. Now, of course, we know that the Pharisees couldn't see it. Uh, They were not able to ascertain the arrival of the kingdom. Jesus uh, says in chapter 12, this very thing. He, he says that there is something seriously wrong in their heart and mind and, able, and that they were able to read the weather, the appearance of earth and sky, but you don't know how to interpret the present time. They, they were oblivious, in other words, to what God was doing in the world, in their own generation. And that idea is going to be really important for us as we look at the teaching of this text, uh, the, the incomprehension, the heedlessness of the Pharisees and men like them to what God is doing in the world. That is, we're going to see a thread that you can trace throughout all of human history. Christ has come. Uh, he had come preaching the good news of the kingdom of God He was attested even by signs, and they missed it. So, if you're not a Christian, first of all, I would say to you today that there's there's a word for you here at the outset of this this, uh, passage. Christ has come. Christ has come, and the the promised Messiah has done everything that the, the Scriptures prophesied of. He, he came and he paid for sin. He conquered death. Today, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning in glory. And the good news of the kingdom of God that he preached is still being preached. It's still being preached today. That good news that sinners like you and me can be delivered from the penalty and the power of sin. You can have the debt of your sin paid for in the blood of Jesus Christ through faith in his name. So don't be like the Pharisees. Don't miss what God is doing in the world still today. In our own generation, turn from your sin, flee to Jesus Christ, run to him for refuge, submit to the only king the only king worthy of your love and your adoration and your affection, the one who gave his life up for sinners, come under the banner of his kind, gracious rule. Now, for those of you who are already uh, happy to report that you're subjects of the king, there's a message here for us as well. Uh, Jesus turns his attention Uh, to disciples. If you look at verse 22, you see that there's a change in audience there. He addresses the disciples, and with that uh, shift in audience comes a shift in emphasis. To the Pharisees, Jesus lays the stress on the, what we might call the already aspect of the kingdom. He says, it's here, it's present. Now, to the disciples, He says, well, there's a a not yet aspect as well that you need to be mindful of. Verse 22, he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Uh, Days are coming where you're going to find yourself saying, I wish 
Christ was here reigning in glory and majesty. I wish the fullness of what he's, he's wrought uh, had, had been brought to realization right now, today. Now, implicit in uh, those words is that very idea that uh, Christ's disciples, and this includes us, we live in a time where the, the fullness of what Jesus wrought in his victory at the cross and in the empty tomb has not been brought to its full consummation. It hasn't been brought to full flower. It's not been fully revealed. Also implied is the, the idea, this understanding, you are going to find yourselves, as you cling in faith to him, in these kinds of circumstances that are going to be fraught with certain per- burdens and pressures and afflictions, things that are going to make you long for those days. Long for one of the days of the son's Son of Man. Your heart is going to be turned not just toward the inauguration of Christ's kingdom on earth, but to its consummation. You'll, you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Do you, you ever find yourself in that position? Oh, God, for the day when Christ returns. There's a reason that God's people tend to get a little louder on uh, the fourth verse of certain hymns, like we sang this morning. Horatio Spafford, it is well with my soul. Oh, Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. You'll have that desire burning in your heart. I wonder if you find yourself with those good desires. You know, that's a good desire. It's a good good desire. It's a precious thing to long for the, the appearing of the Lord, the righteous judge. But notice what Jesus says here. He says, and you will not see it. You will, you will not see it. Your desire will go unrealized, at least for the time being. On top of that, there are going to be those who come along and contrary to what Jesus has just said in this passage about the kingdom of God not coming in those observable ways where uh, people can say, look, there it is, or over there, there are going to be people who come along and they do that very thing. They say, look there, or look here, you, so, so you see how uh, their, their call to you runs exactly contrary to what Jesus said. What Jesus said is going to be true of the kingdom. And yet they're going to, they're, they're going to try to exploit your desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. They're going to try to point you in various directions, telling you, here's what you're looking for. Here's the thing you're longing after. Here's the sign of his coming. And many of you will be immediately able to think of all kinds of things that fit into this category, things that you have seen in your own lifetime, self-purported prophets in our own generation who have come along and they have done this very thing. 88 reasons why Jesus is going to come back in 1988. Do not go out or follow them. 
When you hear these kinds of spurious things, recognize them for what they are, hold them up in the light of Scripture, and do not let them lead you into error. Here you have on record Jesus' words, you will not see it. So turn off TBN. Turn off the new apostolic Reformation guys. Turn off anyone who is saying, look there, look over there. They don't speak for God. Look at what Jesus says here, positively speaking, in verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Do you see the point there? Do you see the point that Jesus is making here? You don't have to go hunting around for hints and clues as to when the Son of Man is going to come back. That shouldn't be your chief concern anyway. What does Jesus say? When he returns, it's going to be impossible for you to miss. It'll be public. It'll be unmistakable, manifestly evident, and hence... There is no reason to conjecture or to speculate about the time of his return. No one is going to be left standing around uh, wondering to themselves, do you you think this might be it? Do you think that this could be the day? No. It's going to be like lightning stretching across the whole sky. It'll be obvious. But look at what he says next. In characteristic fashion, Jesus turns our attention away from his return, away from glorification to the life we live now, to the life that he was destined to live on our behalf. He says, but first he, referring to the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Here is what must needs take place. The Christ must suffer. Not he will suffer, but he must suffer. And there is a difference between the two. In other words, the sufferings of the Messiah that are about to take place aren't going to take place as an accident or as an interruption into the divine plan. uh, Christ's mockings and his scourgings His painful, shameful, bloody death on a cross, they all take place under this divine imperative. Christ must suffer. You see how Jesus puts it all in terms of necessity. He's going to say the same thing on the other side of the cross. After he's walked out of the empty tomb, In Luke chapter 24, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beloved, do you realize that it was necessary for Christ to suffer for you? It was necessary that a ransom be given, that the wages of sin could be paid on your behalf. First, he must suffer many things. And in many ways here, Jesus is counteracting the disciples' faulty, uh, triumphalistic suppositions about the nature of the king and his kingdom. Don't be surprised when you see the Son of Man living a life of humiliation 
and rejection and suffering and then lift it up to die in what looks like defeat. It is all part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Centuries before this, the prophet Isaiah had said, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom we hide, men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. This was the lot assigned to Christ for us. Now, with that in view, Jesus goes on to provide two illustrations from the Old Testament that help us to see what things are really going to look like when he returns. Will there be a preponderance of heavenly signs that are all pointing to this sure and unmistakable fact that the return of Christ is imminent? No, not at all. Now look at verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. This is, this is the first of two. It's the first of two illustrations that Jesus tells us prefigure what things are going to look like at the day of his return. Now, you might think of Noah and his, his very name might bring to mind cataclysm, the great, the great flood, the destruction of all the world. What it says in Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of, thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord indeed blotted man out from the face of the earth, apart from those eight souls that were brought safely through on the ark. But you notice here in, in Luke's account that not a word is said about the evil of mankind. What does he zero in on? People were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage. Everything was going on quite in the way that you would expect. There is nothing there, nothing that is hanging in the air, nothing that would give you the idea that something calamitous or catastrophic was about to happen. Nothing appears imminent, and yet the judgment of God nevertheless comes, and it does so suddenly, swiftly, surprisingly, into the humdrum goings-on of life. While people are going about their business, just as the world goes about its business today, suddenly the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened. And the same was true in the days of Lot. You have an image that moves from that of water to that of fire. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. And in a similar way, you might think of Lot and your mind might fly immediately to Sodom and Gomorrah. How morally corrupt that generation was, and that's true. There were many things that were grievous, grievously ill, grievously wicked about that generation in God's sight. That's true in Lot and Noah's generation. But again, look at the text here, and you see Luke doesn't draw any of those things out. 
That's not because there's not a lesson there, but that's not his interest in this present context. What is his focus on? What does he direct our attention to? It's on the fact that they were spiritually oblivious. They were living as if this world was all that there is. As if life was just going to keep going on and on the way that it always has. They were preoccupied, caught up with the trappings of ordinary life, business, economic ventures. All of these things were the focus of their attention to the neglect of their relationship with God, to the neglect of their own souls, to the neglect of their eternal destinies. Well, Jesus tells us that both of these episodes are like small-scale previews of what is going to happen on what the Bible calls the last day. The last day when Christ returns. Noah and Lot were types of Christ. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, brothers and sisters, what lessons then should we draw from this? Jesus spells it out for us. He, he gives it to us so clearly here. He says, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house, in the house, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus' teaching assumes that the promise of his return does not mean that you go and you cloister yourself off from the rest of the world. It does not presume that you cease and desist from all worldly affairs, or even that you spend every waking moment in your prayer closet. He presumes you will go on about your life, you will be engaged in business life and home life, but you won't get distracted by those things. You're going to guard yourself from the kind of heart attachment that would lead you away from spiritual concerns. You're going to set yourself single-mindedly on those things that are above, those things that are eternal, those things that deal with the soul. And this is where verse 32 comes in, one of the shortest and, and most ominous verses in all of the Bible. Remember Lot's wife. Three words. Three words which if you call these to mind, if you live in light of these words, they have the potential to powerfully shape your priorities, your attachments, your affections. Remember Lot's wife. Remember the one who while sulfur and fire poured out from heaven down on Sodom and Gomorrah turned and looked back and became a pillar of salt. What was going on there? Her eyes were following the longings of her heart. 
Her feet were pointed in one direction, but her heart was in another. And when she looked back, that look was an indication of what her heart was taken up with, what her heart was concerned with. My brothers and sisters, again, I I want to press upon you today the fact that Jesus now is talking to disciples. He's talking to his people. You too, believer, are susceptible to becoming so preoccupied with eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage and buying and selling and running to the grocery store and worrying about your retirement account and wringing your hands over schoolwork and fretting about what your future holds that you might find yourself fitting in quite well in Sodom. The issue at hand here is whether or not you are living in light of Christ's return and the judgment he will bring to the world. Let the one who is on the housetop leave his goods behind. Pray to God that you might loose yourself from that that sense of attachment to the world. Be attached to Christ and to Christ alone. Remember Lot's wife. Take a survey of your life today. Take an inventory of your devotions and your affections? Does that survey testify that you indeed remember the lot of Lot's wife? Now keep going with me in verse 33. Jesus says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Now, you, you see here how he carries forward the idea of what we saw in verse 25, the suffering of the Son of Man to the believer's identification with the suffering servant. Through many tribulations, the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesian elders, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations. If your goal in life is to preserve it, Uh, to preserve your life, to nourish self, to fulfill self, to serve self. What does Jesus say? It will end in loss. The life that is bent toward the gratification of self is a life bent toward self-destruction. Now, conversely, and paradoxically, to the way that we're inclined to think, whoever loses and denies and leaves behind their life for the sake of following Christ will discover life. They'll discover true and everlasting life in the knowledge of him. Lay down your life as Christ laid down his own. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You see, this is Christ's emphatic refrain to those that would come after him, to those who would follow him, who would love him, who would discover true and everlasting life. He concludes this section by stressing the everlasting separation that his return will bring. Let me direct your attention to verse 34. He says there, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. 
There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two different destinies known among the lost and the redeemed. Now you notice again here how they're both about the same work temporally speaking. Two are out in the field, two are sleeping, but one is spiritually ready while the other is not. Now this passage deserves a brief aside. Uh, This passage is one wherein you you may be aware of this. Many of the popular left-behind theories uh, draw their conclusions from. Uh, What I want to say about that is this passage cannot, or these couple of verses cannot be divorced from the larger context in which we find them, and particularly verse 24. If you just glance back there, you remember that Jesus has just described uh, his return, his appearing as public, as unmistakable, as manifestly evident to everyone, flashing like a bolt of lightning from one end of the sky to the other, something that brings about the destruction of the wicked and the salvation of the righteous in the same way that was true of the days of Noah and of Lot. So he is not describing a so-called secret rapture in this passage. If you look at the parallel passages, uh, Matthew 24 is one uh, example. Matthew 24 and verse 37, uh, there it says this, similar language, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware, until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Now, You may not notice immediately the difference there between that passage, and it's just a difference of choice of language, but what does it mean in this particular text to be swept away or taken away, as the King James Version translates it? Those who were taken away in Noah's generation or those who were swept away or those who were destroyed. Uh, Luke says the flood came and destroyed them all. Matthew says the very same thing, just using other words. He says the flood came and took them all away. And so it it is logical and reasonable to conclude that Jesus's words here in our passage are saying that the ones who are taken away are actually the ones who are facing judgment not salvation. Moreover, what does Scripture say about the hope of a new heavens and earth? I want you to listen to what Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 21 says. Proverbs 2 and verse 21, For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. 
What did Jesus say in Matthew 5 and verse 5? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Revelation 5. Revelation 5 has the glorified saints singing to the Lamb, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So what does it mean to be taken away, as Luke puts it? It means certain destruction. Which brings us to verse 37. Where, Lord? That's what the disciples ask of Christ. Where? Well, where what? Presumably, where will they be taken away? And look at how he answers. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, that does sound a little bit enigmatic. Probably this is based on a Jewish idiom. You find something very similar in Job 39 where the Lord is talking about the eagle and some translations or some manuscripts in our text in Luke 17 actually have the word eagle there as well. Either way, it captures the same idea. But Luke 30, Job 39 and verse 30 speaks of the eagle. His young ones suck up blood and where the slain are, there is he. Same idea in our text where Vultures are circling around. You know what that means. It means that carrion is present. In other words, it's obvious. It's like when we say when, where there's smoke, there's fire. You won't be able to miss it, the judgment, where they're taken. The return of Christ will be like the days of Noah, unmistakable, worldwide, inescapable, and ruinous for those who aren't ready. It's a very serious warning from the mouth of the Lord Jesus himself. So dear ones, be ready. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on. Be ready. Be focused. Remember Lot's wife. Be resolute. Be determined in your pursuit of Christ and the things of his kingdom. I want to read you Paul's exhortation to Timothy. He said this, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Don't commit yourself to the things of this world, to the things of this life. Don't become entangled or oblivious to the life that is to come. Don't devote yourself to those things that will not last anyway. Lose your life in order that you may find it. And finally, be encouraged. You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. 1 Thessalonians 5.4 For God has not destined us for wrath, 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you this day, and we come praising you for the good news of the kingdom. Lord, we are so very thankful for what you have done in Christ to rescue our souls from the clutches of death. God, we praise your great name. Thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, thank you for new life in Jesus' name. Lord, thank you for the promise of the resurrection. Lord, we give you glory and honor and praise. We bless your name this day. Lord, we thank you for the blessed hope. I pray that you'd help us to trust you even as we find ourselves in our circumstances, circumstances longing for your arrival, longing for one of the days of the Son of Man. Now, Lord, help us to look to you in patient trust. Thank you for the promise of your word that you know how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment till the day of judgment. Lord, all of our hope is in you in life and in death. In Jesus' name, amen.